0: well today as you do this work we pray in jesus name amen okay as you turn in first peter we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 in the same way wives submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure reverent lives Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Last week, we took the opportunity on Father's Day to cover verse 7, the instruction to husbands, and you can go find those on our website or podcast if you weren't here. And we said we'd come back to verses 1 through 6 today, this instruction to wives, Ephesians 5 has a, a well-known parallel kind of passage to this about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. So wives respect your husbands, follow leadership. Uh, and together, Ephesians 5 paints this picture of how we display the gospel of Jesus. And years ago, I preached that passage in the first church I pastored, a very rural community, and had an elderly church member ask me, so what comes first? Is the uh, husband supposed to love the wife as Christ loved the church, or is the wife supposed to submit to the husband? And I I was young. I wasn't thinking pastorally as much as theologically, so I didn't see the question behind the question. I was just thinking the answer to theological question. So I was like, well, let me think. Christ initiates his love toward us, so yes, husbands should love their wives first as Christ loved the church. And she kind of walked away with a smile on her face. She got the answer she wanted, which meant in her heart, okay, I don't have to follow his leadership until he starts loving me like Christ loves the church, and miss an opportunity to to help her to see. It's much more than that. In a way, yes, if husbands lived out verse 7, living with your wives, fully present physically, emotionally, relationally, seeking to understand them, listening and learning about their wives, honoring and valuing them as the physically the weaker partner, creating this safe space to honor them as co-heirs of the grace of life, equal in the eyes of Jesus, yes, your prayers won't be hindered, and yes, your wives would feel uh, very loved. If that environment were created and fostered by a husband, it would certainly create a place where the wife is thriving and flourishing, and verses 1 through 6 might be easier to embrace um, as it might be for some. Uh, in fact, one individual last week seeking to encourage me commented that though it was Father's Day, it felt like a Mother's Day sermon. And the implication was behind behind that comment, wives feel valued and loved when husbands obey what scriptures command of us as husbands. There's a lot of singles in the room. Obviously, you're like, I'm not married. Uh, Lord willing, you might be one day if he doesn't call you and gift you with singleness. And so you're taking notes, you're thinking about, okay, This is what being a husband should look like one day or being a wife should look like one day. Husbands, our wives flourish and thrive as we live out the reality of Jesus in us and obey what scripture commands of us. And and around the room for married couples, we can verify that this is true. But as you can see clearly in the context of verses one through six, the instruction to wives isn't contingent on a husband doing this perfectly because Peter has in mind wives of unbelieving husbands, in that context, pagan husbands, which is similar to the entire context of 1 Peter, this book of instruction to believers who live among pagan people who don't know Jesus so that we live in a such a way among those who don't know Jesus that we would win them to Jesus. They would see our lives and say, why do you live the way you do? We could tell them. This is why, this hope, this life we have in Christ. This whole section goes back to Verse 12 of chapter 2, setting this up, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so they may slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. And then Peter, as we saw over the last few weeks, dives into what what that looks like as citizens of the Roman Empire submitting to human authorities, what does it look like as slaves submitting to masters, which in the context of our day today would be more like employees submitting to authorities at work. And in both of those examples, there's no guarantee that these human authorities would be Christian, much less that they would obey God's command. And yet, there is still this call that part of how we display the gospel is to function within the structures of the culture that lead to order and not chaos. Now, certainly there are limits to that. We ultimately obey God. And so if any authority is leading us to disobey God, we don't have to obey that authority. We obey God first. But other than that, then we have good reason to live under this way that God has ordered culture and society. And then the third example in which we live this out is here in chapter three between husbands and wives. So let's dig into this passage, thinking about what it's saying, what it meant to the original audience and what it means for us. And Peter begins in verse one with in the same way, which is connecting this instruction to the previous sections that we just referenced. And now the instruction is to wives To submit yourselves to your own husbands. Submit is a word that means to basically follow the leadership of someone who's in a position of leadership, position of authority. To the original audience, this might have been somewhat strange to hear, actually. In that culture that was strongly patriarchal, led in every way by men in all corners of society, women had no voice, women had no vote, They were just a step above a slave or property owned by the man and could be treated as such often. Girl babies that weren't wanted would routinely in that culture be just left out in the environment to die, just had no value at all, just let a girl baby die in the, in the elements. To instruct Christian women to actually make the choice to submit, to even voice this gives them dignity and value, because in that culture they had none. And this is a consistent theme of the Scriptures, that the status of women as God has created and designed the world to work is actually elevated in, in God's kingdom. Oftentimes the Bible has been used to uh, suppress or abuse women, just like the Bible was used to uh, justify slavery or Jim Crow laws or segregation. The Bible has been abused by lots of groups of people, but if you understand the Bible correctly and rightly, if you see the commands of Scripture within the character and nature of God, within the story of Scripture, you see that actually God has designed to elevate the status of women. Tons of examples of this. Rahab in the Old Testament, the pagan prostitute who helped the Israelite spies as they came to attack Jericho, She had faith and believed in the one true Most High God, and she and her family were not only spared, but she was married into the Jewish uh, culture, the Jewish nation. And she, in fact, became part of the genealogy that led to Jesus, something that Matthew highlighted in the genealogy of Jesus. They didn't sweep it under the rug. Oh, let's hide Rahab, the pagan prostitute. No, no, no. She's part of the line. Ruth, the non-Jew Moabite, who was the great-grandmother of King David, also in the line of Jesus. At the beginning of the book of Ruth, she's just a widow with no land, no people, and no hope. But God saw her, and God had a plan. She wasn't to be discarded, but she was to be loved and redeemed. Fast forward to the ministry of Jesus. It was incredibly scandalous for Jesus to allow female disciples. Just wasn't done. No... um, No Jewish rabbi in his day had female disciples. There's tons of stories in the gospel accounts. Jesus going to Samaria, that was scandalous. Sitting at a well in the middle of the day so that this woman who's coming because she's been rejected by her culture, she's coming to get water in the middle of the day um, to love her, to bring salvation to her. Incredibly scandal. Like, why would Jesus even talk to this woman? You just don't do that. The first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus were female disciples. If you wanted your story to have credibility in that day, you would not choose to do that because females couldn't even provide testimony in the court of law. Their word meant nothing. Yet God designed that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the Son of God would be his female disciples because that's what happened. And you see this all through the scriptures. And so... To hear in passages like 1 Peter 3 that wives are co-heirs of the grace of life and that you you have this choice to submit when in their culture there was no choice, that you could see this submission as something that was an act of worship and faith, putting your hope in God, he says, not your husband, just like Sarah did with Abraham. And if you go back and read those stories in the book of Genesis, Abraham acted very foolishly at times. Twice he lied about his relationship with Sarah because he was afraid he's going to be killed because someone was going to take Sarah to be their wife. So they're just going to wipe me out and take her to be my wife. So he would lied about their relationship and said, no, no, she's not my wife. She's my sister. And Sarah let him act foolishly, Peter says, because her hope ultimately was in God, not her foolish husband. And so this following the leadership of the husband for a Christian wife is Ultimately, Peter saying, a worship and hope in God, an act of worship and hope in God, because God is ultimately sovereign. He will ultimately work things out perfectly, not because my husband is amazing and perfect, but because God is amazing and perfect. God is sovereign. In fact, the motive behind this instruction to these wives in the first century was rooted in the fact that some of them, maybe many of them, might have had husbands who were not believers, which doesn't mean that they were Christian and they married non-believers in case you don't know that's really the only prohibition in scripture when a man and a woman get married is that a believer not marry an unbeliever other than that there's no other prohibition but in this case it was probably the wife was converted to Christianity after being married and following Paul's instruction in places like 1 Corinthians 7 they stayed in that marital state even though the husband was not a believer he was a pagan and what's interesting is that in that culture in the first century, whoever the husband worshipped is who the family worships. So if the husband was worshipping pagan false gods, the entire household would worship these pagan false gods. Yet this call to follow his leadership here in 1 Peter 3 does not extend to her worshipping pagan gods because God would never be okay with that. And so in a very tangible way, there is a, limit to her following the leadership of her husband that doesn't mean you worship his false gods follow his leadership but not so far as you commit adultery that's empowering and a significant caveat to these Christian wives and the hope is that by choosing to follow his leadership in every other way she might win him to become a follower of Jesus and how How would she do that? Well, we see in the passage through her genuine Jesus-flavored conduct. Even more than her physical appearance, he might be won by her attitude and how she lived. Which, again, is the entire context of 1 Peter. Live in such a way among the lost generation that you live in that your life demands a gospel explanation. And as you have opportunity, give that explanation. For wives in this passage, this was the inward life more than the outward beauty. Now this is not a prohibition against wearing elaborate hairstyles or jewelry or fine clothes. It's simply to recognize those outward things are not the true source of your beauty as a wife, as a a woman. Like you don't even have to be a Christian to recognize that sometimes women who are outwardly beautiful there's no correlation between that and who they are as a person. Like they can be outwardly beautiful and be someone you don't want to spend any time around. Zero correlation between how you look on the outside and the quality of your soul or character or heart. And so wives, then and now, I would even say women, don't get too wrapped up in outward adornments to the neglect of your inward beauty. He says, your pure and reverent lives, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, he says. Now, gentleness, as contrasted with roughness or bad temper or harshness, it's someone who doesn't attack back. Like Paul would say to the Corinthian believers, 1 Corinthians 4, what do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? He would command, command all of us in Galatians 6.1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Watch out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. As most of the people in this church know, that the only time Jesus talked about who he was, his attitude, his character, his quality, is when he said, I am gentle and lowly in spirit. This is a Christ-like quality that Paul is, or Peter, rather, is telling wives to have, the spirit of gentleness. Later in chapter 3, we'll study uh, verses 15 and 16. But in your heart's regard, Christ the Lord is holy, ready any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence. We're not combative. We're not harsh. We're not rude. We're not rough why because we're not trying to impose our will on people we're not trying to force things to happen by the power of our personality we're living by faith in god he is at work he is the mover of hearts and so i can be as gentle with others as he is with me and quiet he says or peaceful is a better translation same word used in regard to all of us in first timothy 2 Where Paul writes, first of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we, Christians, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It has a sense of being calm and peaceful and tranquil as opposed to restless, rebellious, or disturbed because our faith and hope is in God. We have this buoyancy that keeps us from sinking to the bottom in despair and despair raging out of control to fix things that we see that need to be fixed. So in a sense, these qualities are to be true of all of us, but in this context, it's applied to how Christian wives can live with pagan husbands in a way to make their life attractive and beautiful with the hope of winning him to Jesus. And it would also be a beautiful way to live if her husband was a Christian. It was beautiful, period, attractive, it's intended to draw people in. And you have a picture of this in Sarah who submitted to or followed the leadership of Abraham. He says, calling him Lord. Not, not that he's God, of course, but it's a sign of respect of him and his position of leadership in their family. And Peter says, you've aligned yourself in these lines of holy women when you live like this. Doing what is good and not fearing, he says at the end of verse 6, intimidation. Isn't that interesting? Not afraid. Fearless. Probably for these wives, they're not afraid of their pagan husbands and maybe their desire for their wives to worship their false gods. But bigger picture, you're not afraid of intimidation, not afraid of other men because your hope is in God. You fear him, not man. And it's because of your hope and faith in God, your trust of him, that you can obey these commands. That for these women in the first century could be very, very difficult. And it's even hard today. But it was hard back then, especially if their husband was not a believer and your desire was to see him to come to know Jesus. And you lived in a culture where you had no recourse, you had no help. You couldn't go to a a domestic abuse response team and have a place to live where no one would know where you're at like we have today. You couldn't just call the authorities and say, my husband's treated. There was none of that back then. Just very, very hard to live this out. In fact, it's impossible without Jesus helping you. But that was then, and this is now, and we see a passage like this in 2023 American Western culture, and we think, easy peasy, no problem at all in living this out today. Not really. It's hard, and it's even, even tempting to us today to dismiss this. Well, this is cultural. That's how they lived back then, patriarchal society. Society's not like that anymore, so we can just totally throw this away. And certainly some of it is cultural, like I would not advise a wife today to refer their husband as Lord. That might have played well in 3000 BC in Mesopotamia, but it doesn't play well today. But respecting your husband, okay, that makes sense. There's a way to do that without calling him Lord. Some of this passage, I think we have no problem making application today, inward beauty versus outward beauty, how our lives can speak the gospel at times without a word. So there's... There's, there are times where we do need to speak the gospel. In fact, Peter's already talked about in chapter 1 how we are saved through the word, the imperishable word of God. He tells us later in ch- verse 15 of chapter 3 how we are ready to give a defense for the reason for the hope that we have. So we have to proclaim the gospel, but there are also times where we just display the gospel. So St. Francis of Assisi has this famous quote that people will quote all the time, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And, and and that is taken to the extreme, well, you don't have to preach the gospel, you can just live it out. No, there are times you have to proclaim it, but there are also times where you have to display it. And there are times where you should quit proclaiming it to people especially close to you and just let them see the reality of Jesus in you. For the husband and wife relationship, the wife continually, continually preaching this gospel could become so nagging, it just it just hardens the unbelieving heart of the husband. And Peter's instruction here is just live it out. He'll see the difference. And, and God will use that. Most of this passage easily makes its way into our lives in 2023, except this idea of submitting to your husbands. And so it's not just an issue between wives and husbands. It's a struggle for all of us. Like it's It's even, I think, a greater struggle for us as Americans. Like we have revolution and rebellion built into our DNA. It's a struggle for us because of our sinful flesh. Like who are you? Who is anyone to have authority over me? I am my ultimate authority. You can't tell me what to do. Or I'll go along with it as long as I agree with what you're telling me to do. But as soon as you tell me something I don't want to do, well, watch out. Like our culture just feeds on this, lives on this. It's also hard uh, its hard to imagine this instruction today in the context of marriage because it has been abused. It is being abused. Like over the past few weeks, uh, me and Jennifer and immigrants, we've watched the uh, documentary Shiny Happy People on Amazon Prime. It's about the Duggar family and IBLF, this fundamentalist sect of the church who took passages like this and literally abused women and children in horrific ways. Women and children suffered greatly under their umbrellas of authority. Really wicked men used the Bible to create a system of power and structure to do what they want. And women had no voice. Children had no voice. And for anyone who grew up in that kind of context, hearing a passage like this can definitely trigger like trauma responses and reopen some real wounds. Like it's hard to hear these things. And so it must be said, because it still goes on today, like there are groups in the church today who, who take passages like this and create environments where women are being abused, and they say because marriage is a covenant, you can't get a divorce. There's no such thing as biblical grounds for divorce for abuse. This is still going on. So we have to say it's, this is never an excuse to allow abuse in your marriage. If your husband today, and for single women in our church, if your husband one day creates an environment of of abuse and uses passages like this to create this environment, and you feel like you have no voice in the family, you're just expected to toe the line every day, and if you don't, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be punishment, and you don't feel safe, and you feel threatened, and you feel suffocated by his power and control. And there is even actual abuse or the threat of abuse, be it physical, emotional, mental, sexual, anything else. Your husband is in sinful rebellion. He is acting in wicked ways. Please don't remain silent. Please get help. Either from letting your church family know so we can help or even going beyond that to the authorities. Get out, get safe with the kids until he can be confronted and held accountable. Like, it could be so bad he needs to suffer the justice of governmental authorities. Or maybe it just needs to be examined and healthier measures need to be put in place, depending on what's going on. But grounds for a biblically okay divorce could be present because he's broken the covenant of marriage through his abuse. Wives and kids do not need to suffer under the hand of an abusive husband and father, even worse when they use Scripture to justify it, which is a form of spiritual abuse. Other important caveats must also be mentioned for us to see how living this out can be possible today. Like there are definite limits to this idea of following the leadership of a husband or submitting to a husband besides abuse. Like if he's leading you into sin, you, you should say no. It doesn't matter what the sin is. Say no. This is not following the authority or leadership of every man. This is only for your husband. This does not mean a wife is passive or introverted. Just go read Proverbs 31. That wife described in Proverbs 31 is taking care of business. She is leading. She is working. She is making things happen. She was not a passive or dormant kind of woman. There's no biblically prescribed personality for a wife or husband. Again, even... The quiet and peaceful instruction found in this passage applies to all of us in the New Testament. Husbands can exercise biblical leadership in their home and be introverted, and wives can follow their leadership and be a CEO and be extroverted. Some take this kind of teaching to the extreme where women shouldn't lead in any capacity anywhere in life. They shouldn't be CEOs, they shouldn't run for politics or run for office, they shouldn't have any position of leadership, and that is unbiblical. This teaching does not mean a wife cannot teach her husband, and he can't learn from her, or he can't learn from other women. A husband who doesn't value the voice and insight of his wife is not being a man, he is being a fool. And his arrogance and stupidity is hindering himself to his one arrogant position, perspective, like I learned a long time ago. I'm a much, much better pastor, husband, father with as much of Jennifer's input as possible. There's hardly a decision that I make that doesn't go without her input into something. And if you meet with me about something, you'll almost always hear me say, can I share this with Jennifer? I'd love to get her thoughts on this. I'd love for her to speak into this. I'm like, I'm not an idiot. I know she walks and talks with Jesus, and she has much to say and much to share that I need. And every husband who isn't filled with his own sense of self-importance or arrogance will say the same thing about their wife. They are a gift to us men. This teaching doesn't mean a wife is bound to be a stay-at-home mom or not earn income to help the family, or that she can't have her own impact or ministry or use her gifts for the good of the body of Christ. There may even be seasons of life when the wife can earn more than the husband, or he may not be able to work, or he's in school, or, or whatever, and the family depends more on her income, and all of that is okay. Submission doesn't mean the wife just agrees with everything he says and doesn't hold him accountable. Submission doesn't mean you don't have a voice. It doesn't mean putting the will of your husband above the will of God. Like just in this passage alone, you see a wife with her hope in God, not worshiping the pagan gods of her unbelieving husband, choosing to make much of her inward beauty, put her hope in God, not her husband, and not live in fear or intimidation. But even with all of those caveats, it's still hard to be okay with this because we think Like it implies one person's inferior, one person's superior, which is not at all what this is saying. Nowhere you see that in Scripture, that males are superior over females, ever, in any way. Or we think that it creates social structures that just don't seem necessary today. I mean, honestly, some wives might say in their hearts, like, why does he have to be the leader of the home? Why not me? Why not both of us? And honestly, why did God choose to put men in this position of leadership in the home and the church in the, in the first place? Like, what was his thinking behind that? And the ultimate answer is, we don't know why. Why did God choose for the Son to submit to the Father? Why did God choose for the Spirit to submit to the Father and the Son? There's mysteries to why God made some of the decisions about how things are ordered in the way that they're ordered. But we do know God has ordained leadership structures for the home, for the church, even in society with governments and citizens and state and people. So there won't be chaos but order because our God is not a God of chaos and anarchy, but a God of order. Like it flows from his nature and character. So it goes all the way back to the garden. If you read passages like 1 Corinthians 11, he made us male and female in the garden before sin to perfectly complement one another. The wife was... The woman was called a suitable helper, and she was created from man. Man, But they were both created in the image of God, equal in dignity, worth, and value, suitable to help each other. In fact, in the language of the Old Testament, they completed each other. Like if you remember in creation, there was one thing that was not good, that man was alone. And all of creation was bought before Adam to see if any other part of creation was suffice as his suitable helper, and nothing sufficed. So God put Adam in Genesis 2 in a deep sleep and created woman from Adam. And she was a suitable helper. He was completed when she was created. And they needed each other. They couldn't do the work that God created them to do without each other. There's no implications today when you hear that, like I'm single, so I'm incomplete. Like things are different now because of the curse of sin. Paul would even say it's better to be single because God can use you more for the kingdom of Christ. So there's nothing missing from you if you're single and not married, that you're waiting to to be fulfilled. Don't hear that. But in the creative order, we needed male and female to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with image bearers. And they were created for that, to work together to accomplish that. Sin entered creation, everything was cursed. So in sin, the husband would either dominate his wife or he would sit by and do nothing like Adam did while Eve was being tempted. And the wife would bristle in sin under the leadership of her husband, seeking to rule over him, Genesis 3 tells us. But Jesus shows us a better way through the gospel. He empowers a better way. In Jesus, Ephesians 5, husbands learn how to sacrifice and give their life for the good of his wife. And in Jesus, Philippians 2, wives can learn how to follow the leadership of her husband as Jesus submitted to and followed the leadership of his father. Left heaven, came to earth, laying aside his divine right to have all of creation worship him, but gave his life, submitted his life to be obedient unto death. And this was not making Jesus less than, Because if you know that passage of Philippians 2, at the end of that passage, God says, I exalted you high above all creation so that every man on earth, every woman on earth, every person on earth would bow their knee before you. Jesus was exalted through his submission to the leadership of the Father. So practically, what does this look like in our homes? Like this could be, I mean, there are books written on this. So doing the best I can with just one sermon. Practically, what does this look like in each of our homes? Well, there's no cookie-cutter approach to this because we all have different personalities, stories, gifts, and temperaments. Like I think churches where every husband seems to be and act the same way and every wife seems to be and act the same way is actually more unhealthy because you've created the personality of a husband, the personality of a wife, and everyone's just mimicking each other. But if we take the Bible and the word of God and the spirit of God uh, in the way that he's created each of us, then we have all kinds of diversity in what husbands and wives can look like and how it looks in our different homes. In some marriages, the wife might gladly say, I'm perfectly okay if you make all the decisions. Because I trust you, you're wise, you're whatever, you make the martyr decisions. If If you get off the rails, I'll let you know. In some marriages, the wife is gifted in certain ways that she should have more say in the decisions of the family because it's how she's gifted. And the husband, typically in that environment, is, yes, please, I want more input. It really should look and be as unique as we are unique. Every home should have its own flavor to this. And as long as we're operating within the life-giving commands that we see in Scripture, there's much freedom Like I would say in our home, there aren't many decisions made without equal input from both of us. We discuss and decide almost everything. We work and function as a team. Like, don't take my word for it. Go ask Jennifer. She can speak to you. You don't have to be through my voice. Now, it's not perfect. We have our issues, and we could talk to you about those if we sat down with you. There have been ways we haven't functioned in a healthy way. Jennifer had too high of a view of my role as a husband and leader early on and didn't value her input inside enough, and God's done much to grow her and her own view of herself. But for all of us as couples, like, it would be fun to discuss this within missional communities and to get together as couples. Maybe even we'll... We could pair up couples with couples and have singles sitting in listening to these conversations about what these commands look like lived out in the different ways they're lived out in our homes. In their book on marriage, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim and Kathy Keller do a great job talking about these gender differences and the different roles within marriage. In fact, in that chapter, Kathy writes that chapter on this topic in the book. And I might post that in Workplace for you all this week. And remember, uh, they pastored in Manhattan in 1989, a culture even more opposed to these kinds of distinctions and roles. And she, she tells a story that illustrates much of the difficult and much of the good of this. So listen to this as a read, and then we'll, we'll, be, we'll be done. In the late 1980s, Kathy says, our family was comfortably situated in a very livable suburban, suburb of Philadelphia where Tim held a full-time position as a professor. Then he got an offer to move to New York City to plant a new church. He was excited by the idea, but I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought that the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something Tim would be able to do as a 9-to-5 job. It would absorb the whole family in nearly all of of, of our time. It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the call but I had serious doubts that this was the right choice. So I expressed my strong doubts to Tim who responded, well, if you don't wanna go, then we won't go. However, I replied, oh no, you don't. You're not putting this decision on me. That's abdication. If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. It's your job to break this log jam. It's my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. Tim made the decision to come to New York City and plant Redeemer Presbyterian. The whole family, my sons included, consider it one of the truly most manly things he ever did because he was, he was quite scared, but he felt a call from God. At that point, Tim and I were both submitting to roles that we were not perfectly comfortable with, but it is clear God was working in us and through us when we accepted our gender roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts. Why would the woman submit at times like this? Like, we must reject the traditionalist answer, namely that women are not decisive enough. The fact is, many women are more decisive than the husbands. So why are women called to this position? As I said, the answer to that question is another question. Why did Christ become the one to give up the authority to the Father? We don't know, but it's a mark of His greatness, not His indecisiveness. And women are called to follow Him there. But remember, taking authority properly is just as hard as granting it. Wives, honor their husbands by giving them the opportunity to lead the family. Husbands, honor your wives by valuing them, understanding them, and leading in a way that serves them for their good, not your good. And when this functions best, it's because Jesus is empowering all of it because Jesus did all of it laying his life down to serve and follow the leadership of his father. So in whatever ways this is a struggle for you, Jesus is here to help. Father, we're so grateful that um, you help us when it's hard, when it's hard to understand, and, and when it's hard to actually live out. So sitting here right now, maybe it's easy. Our minds are full. Maybe we have an understanding, a grasp that we think is applicable, but as soon as we leave, it's going to be hard immediately. And I pray for all the homes in our church who are filled with husbands and wives who have to wrestle with this and figure this out. What does this look like in terms of decision-making? What does this look like in terms of leading the home spiritually or, or chore responsibility or who gets me time when they get me? All these various things that are hard to figure out. Jesus Please, please come alongside all of us as husbands and wives and give us wisdom. Help us. You are with us to help us. And thank you that you're gracious and kind when we get it wrong. And that creates opportunities to repent and be forgiven and experience sanctification. I pray for all those in the Crossing Church who are are single and uh, are not experiencing the realities of the relationships. May they encourage us as husbands and wives as they write these things down, remember these things for the day that, Lord willing, you would uh, make them a husband or a wife. And work in our church so that there's just healthy, thriving marriages, healthy, thriving relationships that display the gospel of Jesus Christ to our city. We pray in Jesus' name.